Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. How do you talk to your kids about God, ladies and gentlemen? What are some great strategies and conversations you need to have with your kid? Well, Natasha Crane's going to tell us. She's going to be our guest right after the break. Uh, Many of you know who Natasha is. If you don't, I'll introduce her after the break. But in this first segment, I want to ask you a few questions. And the first question I want to ask you is, I'm about to give you a top 10 list. And I want you to think about what this is a top 10 list of. It's a list of nations, but what's the? why is it in a top 10? Here we go. Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Nigeria, Algeria, and Morocco. Let me say them again. Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Nigeria, Algeria, Morocco. That's a top 10 list of what, ladies and gentlemen? Those are the countries with the largest Muslim populations. Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Nigeria, Algeria, and Morocco. Are any of those vacation spots, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, yeah, some people go to uh, uh, Egypt to see the pyramids and all this. But would you want to live in any of those places? Uh, No. You wouldn't want to live in Indonesia, Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Turkey, Iran, Egypt, Nigeria, Algeria, or Morocco. I I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to live there permanently. And they are the top 10 Muslim countries in the world, or countries, I should say, with the largest Muslim populations from the, 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 the number one to the number 10. Now, why am I saying this? Well, we just had another terrorist attack in our country this week. And let me start by asking you another question. What's the most important thing in the universe? You might say God. Well, of course, but actually for us, the most important thing in the universe is God, but When it comes to knowing God, the most important thing in the universe is truth. And of course, God is truth. Jesus is the truth. And the problem is, if you don't have the truth, Jesus said the truth will set you free. If you don't have the truth, you're in bondage. That's what the implication of, if you have the truth, it will set you free is. And I want to say something about these terror attacks. Are you going to get the truth from the media? No, why? Because they seem to be clueless after every attack. They apparently never do any research after an attack into the Quran, the Hadith, which are the written traditions of what Muhammad said and did, the behavior of Muhammad, or the 1,400-year history of jihad in Islam. You know, they'll say things after an attack. Oh, we don't know why this guy did this. Is it because of our policies in the Middle East? Is it because of inequities and injustices? Is it because he was a madman? No. It's because he was reading the Quran, the Hadith, and he understood the history of Islam. You just need to read Surahs 8 and 9, the 8th and 9th chapters in the Quran. I mean, think about this, ladies and gentlemen. Think about from the Iranians who stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 1979, to the 1983 bombing of the Marine Barracks in Beirut, Lebanon, 
to the 1998 bombing of the USS embassy of the U.S. embassies in Africa, to the attack on the U.S. coal, the USS coal, to the 9/11 attacks in New York, Arlington, and Shanksville, to Fremont, to Seattle, to Fort Hood, to Chapel Hill, to Boston, to Little Rock, to San Bernardino, to Fort Lauderdale, to Orlando, and now back to New York. All the attackers are Muslims. Now. True. Thankfully, most Muslims are not violent jihadists, but that doesn't change the fact that most terrorist attacks are carried out by Muslim jihadists. Oh, the media says we can't say that because that would be racist. Newsflash, ladies and gentlemen, newsflash. Media, are you listening? Islam is not a race. Islam is an ideology. It is not a race. It is an ideology. In fact, Ben Shapiro had an article. I don't have it in front of me right now. He had an article earlier in the week about how the media, if this was a white supremacist attack, if a guy in a truck was a white supremacist and got out with a Confederate flag instead of yelling Alu Akbar, they would be all over this ideology of white supremacy. And rightfully so, the media would be. They, they would, they should expose that as evil, but they never do the same with Islam. In fact, uh, dutifully, the New York Times, and by the way, every morning I read the New York Times and the Bible just to see what both sides are doing. Earlier this week, they had this editorial from a Muslim, uh, and the title of it was, I want Alu Akbar back, which is what it basically means God is great in Arabic. And of course, Muslims uh, who are jihadists always say this when they're, when they're engaging in a terrorist attack, and no exception here in New York, that's exactly what happened. This, it's, it, it, it's an article that is just filled with political correctness. Now, I, I feel for this guy on one hand, because if he is a peaceful Muslim, yeah, you want to say God is great, and you don't want people using it for terrorism, but the guy completely ignores the fact that this is in the Quran. In fact, there is one Democrat who wrote in the comments in the New York Times, he's a, he's, a, he's a Democrat from West Virginia, he wrote this to the guy who wrote the article, I want Alu Akbar back, this Muslim. Uh, he said to him, Mr. Ali, before we begin to sympathize with the, purporting, with the purported hijacking of your sacred religious phrase, first tell us you sympathize with Americans who only want a country free of terrorist threats from ungrateful immigrants who come here to kill innocents in the name of Islam. Tell us the name of even one predominantly Muslim country in the world that is a liberal democracy, and then assure us that people from those countries can assimilate into American culture. Tell us what your religious beliefs or tell us that your religious beliefs can abide the separation of church and state and the rights of women and gays and other religions. Tell us, assure us, and then maybe you will find some sympathy from us. That's what this conservative Democrat said. So <laughs> you don't hear any of this, of course, in the media. And it's, it's quite odd, ladies and gentlemen. I, I don't quite get the alliance that a liberal seemed to have with Muslims because it appears that if Muslims do take over and institute Sharia law, the first people they're going to kill, it seems, are the liberals. They're going to go after people who claim to be liberal or claim to be homosexual. I mean, they're throwing homosexuals, or they're executing homosexuals right now in, in, in other countries. Now, CNN, the communist news network, was talking about this as a truck attack. They just keep talking about the the uh, the vehicle that that 
apparently did this. They're not really talking about the guy behind the vehicle. In fact, I heard one guy even talking about, we somehow need truck control now. We, we, we can't rent these trucks to such people. Forget the truck. Talk about the ideology of the, the guy driving the truck. And of course, part of this may have resulted from the so-called diversity lottery program. And according to the Washington Post, obviously a leftist uh, media outlet, they put it this way. Under the diversity lottery program, the State Department offers 50,000 visas each immigrant from parts of the world with relatively low immigration rates over the previous five years. Most visas go to people from African nations, the Washington Post has reported. To which Mark Levin said, quote, the purpose of immigration historically is to improve the United States. It's to benefit the United States. It's not to ensure diversity from the foreigners coming into the country. It's not to ensure that certain countries are well represented. In fact, unquote, let me say this. Diversity should not be our goal. Unity should be our goal. Sure, diversity in talent is a good thing, but diversity in values or behavior might be a very bad thing. If we are importing people who do not value life, our republic, or our constitution, then that kind of diversity will kill us. Importing people who value jihad is responsible for the very kinds of attacks we've been seeing. So stop with this political correctness. Diversity is not our goal. Unity is our goal. Any team will tell you that. Yeah, you need diversity of talent, but you don't need diversity of goal or diversity of value. Now, some will say, wait a minute, Frank. There's some of this violence in the Old Testament, too. What do you say about that? Well, we'll talk about it with Natasha Crane right after the break. And uh, her book is Talking with your kids about God. 30 conversations every parent must have, so don't go away. We'll have three segments with Natasha right after this. I'm Frank Turek. Don't go away. We're back in two minutes. Talking with your kids about God, 30 conversations every Christian parent must have. A brand new, excellent book by my friend Natasha Crane. Uh, for those of you who don't know who Natasha is, she's been on the program before. She originally wrote uh, the book Keeping Your Your Kids on God's Side, and now the new one is Talking with Your Kids About God. Natasha has uh, created a blog that's extremely popular. It's called Christian Mom Thoughts Blog, and uh, she's a mom herself, obviously, with three kids. Uh, She's actually going to be one of our instructors at Advanced CIA. We have more and more women coming to CIA, and uh, this May we're going to do an advanced version of it. This is largely for CIA graduates and other people who are further along in their ministry of apologetics. And if you go to crossexamined.org and click on events, you'll see Advanced CIA there. We're also running our... our, uh, our regular CIA in August. Again, it will be in Dallas, Texas. The one for advanced CIA in May will be here in Charlotte, North Carolina. So you need to apply quickly because we're only taking a limited group of people for each of those events. Uh, So check that out on our website. And Natasha, it's great having you on the show again. How are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Thanks so much. It's great to be on with you. Oh, absolutely. Now, Natasha, the the first book that you wrote was a big hit, and I know this one is on its way to be, and it's only been out about a month or two, but you did Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, and now this one, Talking with Your Kids About God, 30 Conversations Every Christian Parent Must Have. What's the difference between these two books? 
Yeah, the good question. They sound a lot alike, right? The titles do sound similar. My first book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, was really a broad survey book written directly to parents in that parent-to-parent kind of voice, where I tackled 40 of the biggest challenges today across the major subject areas of God and Jesus, truth and worldviews and the Bible and science. And so it was just a broad survey. Now this book, Talking With Your Kids About God, starts a series of books uh, that are going deeper into one major subject area at a time. So this one is going into 30 new and deeper conversations about God specifically. And the next one, which will come out in another year or so, will be Talking With Your Kids About Jesus. So that will go into 30 more conversations about Jesus specifically. So these books go deeper into those those conversations, and they're written in a curriculum-oriented style, so each chapter builds on the last so that they can be used in a lot of different settings, whether it's a small group or a homeschool or just, you know, everyday parents like myself. Um, and every chapter has a conversation guide that goes with it this time so that parents actually have step-by-step questions to walk them through the content of the chapter with their kids. So it is formatted a little bit differently, but same style, Uh, Very easy to understand, four or five-page chapters, each for busy parents. Well, we're going to get into some of these conversations here on this program, but they really need to get the book because there's 30 of them. Short little chapters, you know, four or five pages each, that kind of thing. So you can get through it very quickly. And as Natasha just said, easy to understand. But let me ask you this, Natasha. How did you even get into this field of apologetics, you know, evidence for the faith? How did... What happened to you? Why, 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 Why did you get into this and why did you start the Christian Mom Thoughts blog? Yeah, it was totally by accident, actually, that I that I found out about apologetics. I started my blog six years ago this month, and when I started the blog, I just intended to write a general Christian parenting blog, and I didn't know what the word apologetics meant. That was just six years ago, so hopefully that's encouraging to others who might be listening who are just getting started with this. It, it didn't take that long to, to get up and running with some of this basic understanding, but once I started the blog and people started reading it and they were sharing my blog posts, over time, it started bringing a lot of skeptics to the blog. For whatever reason, I wasn't writing anything particularly provocative, you know, that would make people come to the blog and challenge me, but they would anyway, and they would leave comments and send me emails and start challenging the truth claims of Christianity, even though I wasn't really talking about that. I was talking about things like, you know, what are good devotionals for young kids and what kind of worship songs you can sing with your family and things like that. But I quickly learned as I started getting these comments that this parenting thing, this Christian parenting thing, was going to have to be about much more than reading devotionals with my kids. And it just really opened my eyes to the challenges that are out there today. And so I just I, I just launched into a deep study on my own of what is the evidence for Christianity. And I learned what the word apologetics meant at that point and just went on a reading tear and learned everything that I could over time. I I even did the certificate program at Biola um, where you can you know, you do an audio course. And uh, so I just really got into it on my own and then turned around and started using my blog then as a place to equip other Christian parents. And so that's really what it is today. It's a place where I write about Christian parenting in a secular world and introduce parents to these ideas and these challenges that they're not necessarily encountering on their own in their own daily lives. So I really came into uh, learning about apologetics by accident. I never intended to write an apologetics blog, but, but here I am, and that turned into the opportunity to write books specifically for parents. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I know when I read a book for kids, or in this case, this is a book for parents who have kids, I learn a lot. And the reason for that is, is because the author has to be able to express the truths in a way that kids can understand. And uh, that's why I encourage, even if you don't have kids, 
to get this book talking with your kids about God. And of course, if you do have kids, what, what could be more important than talking about God? Because God equals eternity, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, God, uh, if God exists and he does, and if Jesus rose from the dead and he did, then Christianity's true. And nothing could be more important than eternity. Nothing could be more important than God. And so you'll have conversations with your kids about sports and about school and about TV shows and about their friends and about their behavior. But what could be more important than eternity? And that's what this book can help you discuss in a rational way, in a way that doesn't sound preachy either. That's important too, because you don't want to turn your kids off on the subject or from the subject. So Natasha, let's just talk about a few of these. As I say, you got 30 of them in here, but let's 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 talk about the existence of God from part one. You have five parts in the book, and from uh, part one, which deals with the existence of God, the very first chapter, uh, you talk about what can we learn about God from nature? What can we learn about God from nature? Well, I think I started the, the section on the existence of God with this question about what we can learn from nature, because a lot of times I think as apologists, we jump straight into the talking about the evidence and the traditional arguments, you know, the cosmological argument, the moral argument, we get straight there. But what I found in talking to a lot of parents is that they've seen bits and pieces of these arguments that they end up asking, well, why is it that Christians end up saying that there's so much evidence for God in nature? And then you'll have skeptics who are saying there's no evidence for God in nature. What am I supposed to make of that? And how do I share that with my kids? in this kind of world where they're being challenged in that way. And so I wanted to start with this question to just kind of outline, well, what does it even mean to look at evidence in nature? And what's important to understand here is just a framework before we even get into the evidence itself in the book or in any kind of conversations, is that evidence itself doesn't say anything, right? It's humans who have to interpret the evidence. And whenever you get humans involved in interpreting evidence, you're, of course, going to inevitably have a lot of different interpretations. I once had a skeptic say to me, um, you know, I'm not so impressed with all this evidence for God's existence because I still see that there are a lot of other possible explanations. And so I, I really emphasize the point in that chapter that it doesn't matter how many possible explanations there are for the evidence. What matters is what's the best explanation for the evidence that we see. And when we have that in mind, we start to understand, we have that framework for seeing that there are so many different factors that go into that human interpretation of different motivations and life experiences and presuppositions. And just because we have a lot of possible explanations doesn't mean that there isn't one best explanation. And so what we can learn about from nature ultimately is that the best explanation is that there is a creating, universe-designing, life-designing, moral law-giving being consistent with whom we call God. It doesn't get you all the way to the God of the Bible, and a lot of parents are confused on this, too. I found they say, well, how does that get us back to the New Testament? Well, it doesn't, but it's a groundwork that we lay. Exactly, and in fact, I normally uh, say that uh, when I'm doing the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation. When I get to the point where we go through the three arguments, uh, the three main arguments that I normally give, and you mentioned actually in the book, and you just mentioned them actually, is the cosmological, teleological, and moral arguments. And I think from those arguments, you can deduce that there is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created all things and sustains all things. But that doesn't mean that that creator is necessarily Jesus. I mean, it could be Jesus, 
But we don't know if it's the God of the Bible or just the God of the Old Testament or perhaps the God of the Quran. Or we, we just know we have a theistic God at that point. And you have to get into the New Testament to see if it is the Christian God or just a basic theistic God. So, yes, that's uh, that's an important point that you make here, and that is from from chapter one. Then, in part two, Natasha, you get into science and God, and uh, in chapter seven, you talk about can science prove or disprove God's existence. What do you say to that? Well, this is a, another area that I find parents really are intimidated by because. They, they see all these different claims about science proves God and, and science disproves God, and again, what do we make of this? And a starting point, just to take a step back from a very nuanced conversation, is just to understand that when we're talking about proving in terms of science, we're using the wrong vocabulary to start. So anytime someone's saying, you know, this proves God or this disproves God, they are overstating their claim. And so it's sort of a red flag that we're in the wrong territory. And this isn't something controversial to say or that only Christians think. Even even atheists who are, you know, are thoughtful about the subject would acknowledge that. And I quote yeah, Jerry Coyne, obviously, he's an atheist evolutionary biologist. And, you know, and he says the same thing, that science is not in the business of strictly proving or disproving anything. This is for mathematics and logic. So right away we can say, no, science does not prove or disprove God because science doesn't prove or disprove anything. What it does is it looks at where the weight of the evidence points. And so then we need to get into a more detailed conversation about, okay, when you say, you know, God and when you say science, what do you mean by that? and looking at the different ways that people use the word God and the way that people use the word science. And ultimately, after we walk through those points in the chapter, the conclusion is that when people say that and they make that claim, what they're really saying is that the God of the Bible, so the God as conceived of by the Christian Bible, specifically contradicts claims of certain branches of science or the mainstream scientific consensus of those. So when we hear these big sweeping statements about God and science, it really comes down to a few specific issues and most commonly the age of the earth and evolution, which then I go on to talk about in the next chapter. Yeah. In fact, as you said before, the facts don't interpret themselves. And um, the real truth is just like um, science doesn't prove anything. You mentioned a minute ago, it's more tentative in nature. Science really doesn't say anything. It's the scientists that say things, right? Because the scientists have to interpret the data. First of all, they have to gather the data. Then they have to interpret it. And that's not done by science. That's done by scientists. So, friends, if you're really afraid of science, you shouldn't be. Because quite frequently, the interpretations that are made by the scientists are based on their atheistic philosophy. It's not based on the evidence necessarily that they're seeing in their microscope or through their telescope. Science doesn't say a word. Scientists say things. And we'll go into a little more of that with Natasha Crane right after the break. You're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. Our website, crossexamine.org. That's cross-examine with a D on the end of it, .org. We're back in just two minutes. Don't go away. Ladies and gentlemen, just got back from Anchorage, Alaska. What a great spot up there. Uh, spoke at Anchorage uh, Baptist Temple. Jerry Prevo is the pastor up there. The guy has been the pastor there since 1971. And he's a stud. I mean, he's still out there. He's out hunting out there. He's, he's the... Uh, He's actually the chairman of the board of Liberty University, all the way from Anchorage. The guy's a great guy. Enjoyed being there. Uh, enjoyed also my friend Dave Bronson. To 
we went up in his uh he's a delta pilot we went up in a uh in, in his two-seater uh plane 1947 vintage and flew around landed on a riverbed up there had some salmon we're looking for moose and bear didn't see any saw a moose crossing though i didn't really know that moose knew how to read but apparently they do they know where to cross the street up there and also spoke at the university of alaska at anchorage at about 300 for that uh there's a great uh ministry on that campus mosaic and uh, so if you're up in alaska check those guys out there at mosaic ministry university of alaska at anchorage and also the Anchorage Baptist Temple. Great folks. Hope to go back there sometime soon. Uh, coming up this uh, week, if you're listening to this uh, right now on Saturday, I'll be in the, in uh, Nashville today with Robbie Zacharias uh, and Jay Warner Wallace at, uh, where are we? We're at a church there in Murfreesboro, actually. And then tomorrow, Sunday, I'm in Michigan in uh, the Muskegon area. And then Monday, I'm speaking at the Muskegon Community College uh, at 10 a.m., If God, Why Evil. Same presentation at 2 p.m., If God, Why Evil. And then 7 p.m., I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. All those talks are open to everybody at Muskegon Community College. And then the following week, I'll be in Sulphur Spring, Texas. You can check out all the details on our website, crossexamined.org. And oh, by the way, I already mentioned CIA and advanced CIA. Don't forget, we're going back to Israel this year in April. And our guide again will be the great Eli Shukran, the archaeologist who discovered most of the city of David. Well, actually, he excavated most of the city of David and he discovered the Pool of Siloam. He is going to be our guide on our April return to Israel. Great time to be in Israel. Check out our website. We're running out of room here. We're only taking one bus. We're not taking two buses, one bus. We want everyone on one bus, so that limits us to around 40 people. So if you want to go on that trip, you better sign up quickly. Okay, back to my friend Natasha Crane, talking with your kids about God. 30 conversations every Christian parent must have. Now, Natasha, before the break, we were talking about can science prove or disprove God's existence. And you made the astute point that when people say that science has disproven God, uh, what they really mean is they think that some scientific theories somehow contradict the Bible, and so then they say, well, there's no God. What do you say to that? Well, the first thing to ask is always, you know, what do you mean by that? And when it comes down to it, people are almost always talking about the age of the Earth or evolution. These are the, the two hot topics, in there, and really when people claim science, they're really talking about evolutionary theory most of the time. So there are a couple of different points that that we can make about that, and I go on to talk about that in the next chapter. In particular, on the age of the earth question, this is a question that Christians have different views on. So when people say that there's a contradiction between mainstream scientific consensus and what the Bible claims, it's, this is actually a contradiction that not all Christians would agree is a contradiction. And so there are different Christian views, um, both young earth creationism and old earth creationism, in terms of how old the Earth actually is. So this is not necessarily even a point of difference between, between the mainstream scientific consensus and some Christians. And then with evolution, we have different views on that as well. There are some theistic evolutionists. There are a lot of reasons why many Christians reject evolution, in particular that they don't believe that there's enough scientific evidence for evolution, and also theologically speaking that if we don't have a historical Adam and Eve, then we have a lot of other questions that arise. So there are a lot of reasons why Christians reject evolution, but even within that, in theistic evolution, the big, the big comparison or the big contrast is between 
naturalistic evolution where we have no intelligence and no purpose behind it and it's completely unguided versus a purposeful creation and a purposeful intelligence behind it all. And so, again, we always have to get back to asking the question of, well, what do you mean by that when you say that there is that contradiction between the Bible and between mainstream scientific consensus? And then that's when you start getting into more of the details about what people are claiming with their science. As we mentioned earlier, science doesn't say anything scientists do. So while some scientific interpretations and some biblical interpretations may contradict, in reality, science and the Bible do not contradict, because if God exists, and he does, and if Jesus is the Savior, and he is, then the Bible and, and whatever scientific theory do not contradict. What may contradict is some interpretations of the data from the natural world and some interpretations of the Bible, but in reality, they don't contradict. And uh, so you, you just got to, as Natasha said, you just got to ask people when they say, well, I believe in evolution. Well, first question should be, what do you mean by evolution? If you mean change over time, count me in. If you mean microevolution, count me in. But if you mean macroevolution, molecules demand without intelligence, I not only think there's no evidence for that or the evidence for it is very sparse, there's evidence against that. And uh, so... And by the way, as you mentioned, Natasha, it, it, there's Christians have different interpretations of this kind of thing anyway. Even if macroevolution were true, it wouldn't mean Christianity was false. It would give us some problems with biblical inerrancy, but it wouldn't mean that necessarily God doesn't exist or Jesus didn't rise from the dead. In fact, I try and argue that um, in order for science to even work, you need a being like God to create these natural laws and, and to sustain them. The only way we can do science is if the world is orderly and consistent and precise. Uh, and that seems to be the product of some order or some mind. So the very people who are claiming uh, that science can disprove God need to steal this natural orderly world in order to do science. They need to steal from God to argue against them. We're talking to Natasha Crane, her new book, Talking With Your Kids About God. And it's not just for kids, ladies and gentlemen. This is a good book that you can read yourself, whether you have kids or not. Now, from part three of the book, Natasha, uh, you have a, a, a chapter in there uh, called, it happens to be chapter 16, Why Does God Seem So Harsh in Parts of the Old Testament? In fact, I was talking about Islam and the Quran in the first segment, uh, especially with regard to these recent terrorist attacks. And some people will say, well, you know, the Old Testament has some, some pretty violent uh, areas in it too. What do you say about that? Well, question, why does God seem so harsh in parts of the Old Testament? Yeah, and this is something, I know you, you get this question all the time, <laughs> and I hear it all the time, too, from, from people who email me and leave comments on the blog, and it, it's, really, it, it's really surprising how many people don't look at the context of the passages that they're quoting from, and really, it comes back to two different things. When they're quoting something that seems particularly harsh and horrible, it's either something that is purely descriptive of an historical event, but it's not prescriptive. In other words, it's not telling us to do something. It's telling us about the actions of sinful humans that God would never have commanded, or it's in the context of God's judgment. And so one of the, the easiest ways, I think, that we can use to teach our kids about this and to look at it is to, of course, talk about the nature of God and that He's not just loving, as our culture is always putting forth, and that's, that's a good thing if you're defining God's love in the right way, but He's also just. And what does that mean? That He will, He can and will judge rightly and perfectly. And so when our kids have that backdrop of God's attributes and they're holding those in appropriate balance, which the first part of that section talks about, then they're in a position to understand, okay, if God is just, 
and humans are sinful, then the Bible is going to record some outworkings of God's just nature, right? So when we see in the Old Testament these events that to us seem pretty harsh, like the, the account of Sodom and Gomorrah or the flood or the plagues in Egypt, when we see these things, a key question to ask is, is this part of the outworking of God's just nature? And when we look at those accounts, and I go through these major ones in that chapter, we can always see that it's talking about the wickedness of the people in that case, that it is all about the sinfulness and that this is a judgment. Now, that doesn't say, that doesn't mean that it's easy to look at those things and understand exactly why God used that timing or the extent of that judgment. We also don't have God's infinite perspective and wisdom. So this is all really, it has to be seen in the context of his just nature and then looking at the context of the accounts themselves to understand that this was an example of that. Yeah, context is so often overlooked. And uh, now some will claim that, well, when it comes to the Quran, you're taking it out of context as well. But uh, scholars of Islam will tell you that in Islam, they have this doctrine of abrogation where later surahs abrogate or nullify earlier surahs. And when you read the Quran, it's hard to understand the Quran because it's not chronological. It's it's from the largest surah, except for the first surah, to the smallest surah. And, um, and the more violent verses have abrogated or nullified the more peaceful verses in the Quran. And that is prescriptive on Muslims today, these, these violent verses. Now, thankfully, most Muslims don't agree with this, but a significant minority do, do, and that's why we have these terrorist attacks. Whereas in the Old Testament, as you pointed out, Natasha, any of these judgments are descriptive. They're not prescriptive. And, and obviously, if God exists, he can judge people rightly whenever he wants. And he can, I, I, th I think people don't understand, God can kill you anytime he wants. I can't kill you. But God can kill you as a judgment, and if Christianity is true, then people don't really die, they just change locations. They go from this life to the next life, uh, and God can take you from this life to the next life, whether you're two years old or 82 years old. It's up to him. Uh, but the big difference, one of the biggest differences between the Quran and the Old Testament is the, well, first of all, the Old Testament happens to be true. <laughs> But, but uh, even if you just look at it as two composing pieces of literature or two opposing pieces of literature, the Quran is, is prescribing this kind of judgment on every non-Muslim, whereas in the Old Testament, God is prescribing judgment on specific people for doing specific immoral things in the Old Testament. So the two are not analogous. Now, do you deal much with Islam in this book, Natasha? No, that's not a subject that's covered in this. Okay, but you cover, um, you said the plagues, you cover the Canaanite issue, or what, what slavery, any of these so-called issues in the Old Testament, are they part of this book? Right, well, actually, actually, my first book, Keeping Your Kids on God's Side, has three chapters addressing that is the Bible support rape, human sacrifice, and slavery. And that was sort of inspired by the website evilbible.com, which right. gets millions of visitors every year, and I find that over and over people like to copy and paste information, and I use that term loosely, from that site and send it to me. And so I realized that this is such a, an impactful site, and people actually look to this site for information on why the Bible is supposedly so immoral. And so I took, I took three of those chapters in my first book to talk about those issues specifically. And many of those same people are atheists, and they have no standard by which to judge the Bible as quote-unquote immoral. 
So they're stealing right. from God while they're arguing against him, and you can point that out to them. Now, an atheist can fairly say, well, if you believe in God, why does God act this way in certain areas? That's a legitimate question, and that's a question you address in talking with your kids about God. 30 conversations every Christian parent must have. But you can't be an atheist and say, I got this standard and your God is immoral. No, you can't do that. Anyway, you're listening to Cross-Examine with Frank Turk. Website, crossexamine.org. Also chase, uh, check out Natasha's website, Christian Mom Thoughts. Christian Mom Thoughts. Check that out. We're back in two. you talk to your kids about God in a non-preachy way, an intelligent way. Well, you can get Natasha Crane's new book, by the way, C-R-A-I-N. That's Crane, C-R-A-I-N. Forward by the great Sean McDowell, who has his endorsement on it. Some crazy guy by the name of Frank Turek put an endorsement on this as well. I don't know who he is. Kristen Welch has a... Uh, has a endorsement on it. you got just about everybody on here, Natasha. you got Jeff Myers from Summit. Craig Hazen from Biola, Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case homicide detective, Annie ba- or Andy Bannister, Melissa Crane Travis. you got all sorts of people endorsing this book. Why? It's a good book, and uh, people need to get it. Talking with your kids about God, and as I say, even if you don't have kids, you will benefit from this book. Short chapters, five, six pages on the hottest topics out there related to questions your kids might have and probably you even have about God. In fact, one of them, Natasha, uh, in part four, uh, where you talk about believing in God, and in chapter 21, you answer this question, is what you believe about God simply a matter of where you grew up? How do you answer that? Well, I, first, I acknowledge, you know, that, yes, if you look around the world, there's certainly a correlation between the beliefs that people have about God and the country where they live, in a lot of cases, not all the cases. You can certainly find assessments of that, which immediately renders the claim that it's just a matter of where you grew up false, because it's never going to be true in an absolute sense. But yes, if you grew up in the Middle East, chances are you're going to be a Muslim. And if you grew up in certain parts of South America, chances are you're going to be a Roman Catholic. So there is a correlation there. But the question is, well, what does that mean? And what implication does that have for whether or not Christianity or any other religion is true? And so once again, you know, this keeps coming up, but what do you mean by that when you say that? What is the point that you're trying to make? that you would ask a skeptic who's claiming that. And again, I hear this question a lot as well. Um, lots of times, you know, through my blog, people saying, well, if you grew up somewhere else, that's what you would be. But what, what I really find is that you have to, once you get into the what do you mean, people are making one of three underlying claims. The, the first one is that religions are nothing more than a cultural fluke. If you see that there's this correlation, then that means that that's all it is and that it's just a product of your culture. But that's a logical error. It's committing what we call the genetic fallacy. It's judging the truth of something based on where it came from rather than the merit of it. And so you can't do that. It's just it doesn't logically follow. So that's not a good argument. The second thing is that sometimes when you get into it, people are saying, well, I think it just shows that the evidence for the truth of any one religion must be lacking. Because if we saw that there was really this much evidence for one religion, then you would see it spread worldwide. And this is always an interesting claim, because that assumes that everyone is making every decision based on evidence and interpreting that evidence in the same way. And we know that that's not true. And I think it's funny, too, because a lot of times skeptics are the ones who say, well, Christians don't make their their choices and their beliefs based on evidence, yet they're claiming that if it were true, everyone would would believe in the same way. So it is kind of contradictory. And then the third thing is a lot of times people are just saying, well, if this God exists and he's 
fair, then that means that everyone would have a chance to come to him in their own way. Some people have so many different beliefs around the world, and some people have never heard about Jesus. But that's not an argument against the truth of Christianity. That's just an argument about what God does with people who have never heard of Jesus. And ultimately, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly the answer to that question, but if we know of God's nature, and we know that he is a just and a perfectly good God, then we know that he will judge rightly on the day of judgment. And so that's not something that we have to be concerned about. The question that we can ask, and a lot of people do, but it doesn't say anything about the truth of Christianity just because there's a correlation between belief and where you grew up geographically. Yeah, we're talking to Natasha Crane. Her new book is Talking With Your Kids About God, 30 Conversations Every Christian Parent Must Have. You know, it's interesting, Natasha, that Richard Dawkins actually brought this objection up not long ago, um, and uh, that, you know, that religion is just a function of where you grew up. Yet that applies to him, too. Here he is. He grew up in, a, in at least uh, officially a Christian country, yet he's an atheist. So he's contradicting his own, his own claim that you just believe in the worldview in which you grew up. And it also doubly reflects uh, a problem with his argument because if he's saying that, well, my country's secular now, you could ask him, well, is that why you're an atheist? It has nothing to do with truth. It's just because although England is, is at least on the surface supposed to be officially a Christian country, practically it's not. So... Is that why you're an atheist? So you're not really saying atheism is true. You're just saying it's a result of your culture. See, it's a silly objection, but I think you nailed it when you said that really the issue is this is a, this is a, this is a moral objection more than any other, that God is somehow immoral because where people grow up is basically what they believe. The prevailing worldview is what they believe, and so God is somehow immoral. And no, I, I really think you're, you're right that what people tend to do, they don't necessarily base their belief on evidence. They base their belief on what they find attractive, as Pascal said. And they may find their worldview attractive, and so they just believe in it. Most people are not on a truth quest. They're on a happiness quest, and they're just going to believe whatever they think is going to make them happy. It's difficult to go against what your culture is saying, obviously. And so that's why in our culture, as it gets less and less Christian, it's going to be more and more difficult to be a Christian. But that doesn't tell you the truth or falsehood of Christianity or secularism. You need to establish that on other grounds. Uh, now, in part five of the book, Natasha, you talk about what the, the, the difference God makes. And in chapter 25, you ask the question, this, ladies and gentlemen, this is an essential question. What is the meaning of life? What say you, Natasha? Well, I think, I think this is particularly an interesting question because there's so much confusion over the answer to this. And I, there's no way to get people more upset at you than to claim that atheists have no meaning to their lives. So, and, and I hear this claim by Christians a lot. You know, you see people respond to, to things on social media and, and make these claims. They say, well, atheists, say there's no meaning to their lives. Well, it's important to understand and acknowledge that anyone can create subjective meaning, something that's meaningful to them. If I decide that I want to make the meaning of my life the uh, blanket in my living room, and I'm, I'm going to live my life with that blanket around me. You know, it's a silly example, but I can do that. I can subjectively make that meaning that the meaning of my life. But that doesn't mean that's the true meaning of your life. And if atheism is true, which of course we don't believe that it is, but if the atheistic worldview is correct, then yes, you can have anyone can have that meaning to their lives. 
But if there is a God and there is an author of our lives who has created us with a specific meaning, then that is the objectively true meaning to our lives. And of course, how do we find that out? We find that out through what he has revealed through the Bible. And so as Christians, we believe that the meaning of life is really to know God and to make him known to others. I love that summary that a lot of people use to summarize so much of the Bible. And so I use that, you know, to make God, to know God and to make him known. And whether or not you want to acknowledge that is the ultimate meaning to your life and not the purpose for which you were created, that meaning remains true. And that's so important to understand. So you can go on creating subjective meanings for yourself. It doesn't mean that's the true meaning to your life. But if we were created with a purpose and that longing for God, then there will always be that that longing within us that if we're not actually living toward that purpose and we're not living out our true meaning, there's going to be that hole inside. And so it's so important that we grapple with that question and understand that meaning is not just about whatever we want to assign to it. It's a question of, was there a purpose for us? And if so, what is it? And Natasha covers that in more detail. In fact, uh, the ensuing chapters in that section after the question, what is the meaning of life? She covers, do we really have free will? What should we do with our lives? What is our responsibility to other people? What should we make of the, of the sense of evil? And why does biblical hope matter? That's all in the new book, talking with your kids about God, 30 conversations every Christian parent must have with Natasha Crane. Now, uh, Natasha, let me uh, ask you a couple of questions about CIA, because I know you attended CIA last year when we had it in uh, California, and you're going to be one of our instructors uh, at Advanced CIA in May. Uh, And I think you're going to do a a, a talk on, or at least you're going to help people go from blog to book. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think I get asked a lot about, you know, how did you end up writing books? Because you know, you're not starting out as a, a PhD or some kind of biblical scholar with that kind of expertise, and you just kind of start out with this blog. Like I said, six years ago, I didn't even know what apologetics meant. So how is it that someone who is just blogging about these topics actually ends up writing books? And so many people are asking about this, and I really just want to point them straight towards this advanced CIA to, to talk about, you know, how, how do you do that, and what does it take, and how do you write a blog in an effective way? Unfortunately, there are a lot of apologetics blogs out there that are read by no one but other people interested in apologetics. And I think as Christians that we should be looking at different ways to reach people who are not already aware of apologetics. And so I think my, my background professionally is in marketing. And so that's really the, the, um, the context with, with which I look at it and just say, okay, from a marketing perspective, how do we share these truths and how do we get this kind of information out there to people who don't already know about it? How do you generate, number one, awareness of apologetics, number two, interest in apologetics, number three, a desire to learn apologetics, and number four, the action of actually doing apologetics. And those are basically from a marketing model that's very well known, but I think it really applies to this and how you how you get your blog out there and then ultimately what it takes to then get into writing books. Yeah, that's so important because you can have the best book in the world or the best blog in the world. If nobody knows about it, it's not going to do anything. So marketing is right. so important. And that's one of the things you'll talk about and others will talk about at Advanced CIA. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Advanced CIA is primarily for CIA grads, although if somebody's really accomplished in apologetics already and still wants to take it to another level, we'll look at your application. Uh, 
and consider it, but you can certainly apply for uh, our traditional CIA program, which is a program we've run 10 times already, once over the past 10 years, uh, and we've gotten great results with it. People love it. They come back and do it again. Uh, go to crossexamine.org and uh, click on events. You'll see both CIA and advanced CIA. Natasha, it's been a pleasure having you on. Oh, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And uh, check out Natasha at Christian bombthoughts.com great blog you can see her also at advanced cia this may and uh, also get the new book talking with your kids about god 30 conversations every christian parent must have and as i say uh look for me in uh nashville this saturday and uh michigan on sunday and monday texas the following week all the details on our app and blog. See you next time. God bless. The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast do not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.